I tell you, I can remember those days as a parent getting to sing and do things with my kids. Wait a minute, Mimi, just one second. Mimi, before you sit down, I want you to say congratulations to one of our new citizens of the United States of America right down here. Congratulations, Mimi. You have had a big week. Big week. Wow. Graduating fifth grade, becoming a citizen, singing with dad and with faith. Fantastic. You're a blessing. You know, been great to watch you grow over this past couple of years and your work with the praise team. Heading to Morgan State, right? So we'll be praying that God will bring you back often. Have a great first year. And I want to say to all our graduates, you know, it is my perspective. It's different in different cultures, but in this culture in the United States, I think that young people do as much maturing from the age of 17 to to 22 or 3, this four years of five years of being in college, moving off campus, doing those things, it's a big time for you. We invite you to stay connected because we love you and we care about you. We want to be with you on the other side of this journey. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. We are blessed. So welcome to Father's Day at Pathways. Uh, My congratulations. I want to add them to all the dads in the room, to those who are watching online, I hope you have a great blessed day with your loved ones. And as always on Father's Day, for those whose fathers no longer walk on this earth, I hope you have many happy memories to reflect upon today. This year, for the first time, I am included in that group. Um, Most of you know that my father, James Haskell Williams, passed away earlier this year at the ripe age of 95. Other than a brief announcement of his passing at the time, I have not spoken about it from this pulpit since then, in part because I needed a a little space and time to reflect upon it, and also because I understand that what we call this sacred desk, it's not my personal possession. Uh, It is my sacred responsibility. My dad understood that well. So I've been kind of waiting for this Father's Day to have a little more appropriate moment to talk for a few moments about one of the finest men, one of the best fathers, one of the most humble Christians I have ever known. I found out this week when I spoke to my older brother, after he passed, a couple of weeks after he passed, uh, they found the obituary that he had written for himself, all three sentences of it. (laughs) Ours was a column this long, you know, in the good old Roanoke Times. His humble example challenges me still, and it is my hope that today's time together might do the same for you. I'd like to tell you a little bit about my dad. I understand it's a privilege you get as a pastor that not everybody gets, but uh, it might help you understand me, and that might be to your benefit over the long run. Who knows? Daddy was born in rural Bristol, Virginia, the only son of His mother and father, although he did have about a dozen half-brothers and sisters, my my grandmother, his mother, married my grandfather, 
There was quite an age gap, and without any kind of insult to either of them or their memories, in large part, he married her, the daughter of one of his dear friends, to help him care for those other 12 kids that he had. But gratefully, she was blessed with one child of her own, and that was my dad. I want to say she did good, he did her proud, they made that one child count. He and his mother, my dad and his mother, sometimes with dad, he said, they attended the Methodist church there in Bristol. In those days, every town had about one, right, of each denomination. And they attended the Methodist church, but one summer evening, he decided that he would go over across the street to the Baptist church that was having a summer revival. Many of you probably did that in your growing up. I went to him in all kinds of churches. What he didn't count on was that on that night, as much as he'd grown up being a church boy, that night he would encounter Christ afresh, anew. He recommitted his life to living for Jesus, never left the Baptist church, became a deacon for about six decades or so, a great man of faith, barely missed a week of church from that day until the day he became homebound, at which time he began to watch our service online and did that for many years. A very faithful man of God. But there was much more to Jim Williams than just his church participation. Like a lot of young men of his generation, he joined the military for World War II right as he graduated high school, but he suffered from what we call the Williams family curse, which you can't tell now because I recently had surgery, but you will remember I was wearing glasses. And let me tell you, our vision is atrocious in our family. And it was so bad for dad, he was what they called 4F, right? You couldn't qualify to be in the regular military. So they said, we have a job for you. And they took him and said, we're going to put you in the medical corps. So they shipped him off to post down at Brooks in Texas, taught him how to be a corpsman, what we would call today a a field medic in World War II. Just as he was preparing to ship out, the war ended. A very fortunate young man. He did qualify, therefore, for the GI Bill, and he went off to Indiana, went to college, studied to be an engineer. Of course, you know, with Uncle Sam, as my daughter's about to discover, what they do for you, there's a payback for it later. And we got through college, they said, you know, we live in an interesting world, and we have a job for you. We've paid for your college. You know how to be a corpsman. Now you're an engineer. We'll give you a choice. You can go be a corpsman in Korea, or you can use your engineering degree, and we'll use you in Germany to rebuild all that stuff we blew up a few years ago. Well, his mama didn't raise no fool. You know what he did. Off to Germany he went, part of the Marshall Plan. He and a bunch of other engineers were a part of rebuilding many of those key bridges that we had blown up during World War II, including the very famous, the bridge at Remagen. I went back there with him in 94. And we went and walked there and visited the old towers that had been uh, were all that's left of the original bridge, and just spent that time together, remembering the opportunities that he had had in the time that he spent there in Germany. 
But you know what? Rebuilding those bridges in Germany was not the great work of his life. He returned to the U.S. and went to work for the only employer he would ever know. So if you're trying to figure out how I'm with the same church after about 30 years, you know where I get it from. He went to work for the Virginia State Highway Department, worked in various jobs over the years, but it was an interesting appointment in about 1960 that would kind of mark him. He was assigned to the little town of Accomack on the eastern shore of Virginia. What was interesting about that in 1960 was this little project they were starting called the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel, 17.6 miles long, four man-made islands, two one-mile-long underwater tunnels. We went over to Accomack from Norfolk on the ferry, and a few years later, we drove back across the bridge as we moved to Roanoke where he would work the rest of his career for that same department of highways. But the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel was not the great work of his life either. Because as it turned out, in his first posting with the department, he was put in a small little town called Lebanon, Virginia, not too far from Bristol, where he met his secretary, Eva Pauline Smith, who would later be his wife. We kind of laugh about those things today, but I've heard my parents talk about how they would have, you know, uh, office Christmas parties, and the women would wear their long white gloves, and they would dance. And sure enough, Jim and Pauline got married, and you've heard me mention my family before. I'm one of eight sons. They invested a lot in family. By the way, eight sons, you know my mama's favorite saying about that, right? Quote, ain't none of them in prison. I guess we done all right. Unquote. <laughs> Jim knew the tragedy of losing an infant son about age one. So everything wasn't sweetness and light. He also knew the great joy of watching those other seven grow up. All kinds of educations, all kinds of locations around this country, all kinds of grandchildren and great-grandchildren. His 95 years were richly blessed. In 1991, when I was called to serve at First Baptist Church of Wheaton, Maryland, I'd been there six months. I was attending the DCBC annual meeting, and I got a phone call. Your mother needs you. And my brother had been in a car accident and broke his neck. He survived. He may watch this very service a little bit later. They often do. And dad became, for the next 25 years, my brother's physical therapist and his caregiver. Using all that great corpsman training, he'd gotten back in the 40s. If you've ever known anybody to be cared for in that way, I can tell you that in the 25 years, he never got a single infection while working with my parents. Most quadriplegics will tell you that's the bane of their existence. So he got not just care, but great care. And let me just kind of sum it up this way. What my dad would absolutely tell you is that the great work of his life was the little group that was known as the Williams boys. That was the great work of his life. To see them, including me, the families, 
the children, the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren, that was the great work of his life. And I would say this, the great work of any father's life, whether by blood or otherwise, by adoption or by investment or just by loving care, the great work of any father's life is this family that he works to produce, to provide for, to shape, and to guide. Now, I need to put a few caveats here on the front end. I know that there's always different responses on Father's Day, but today you'll understand why, having shared about my dad, I feel really compelled to speak primarily to fathers and other parents. But it really speaks to all of us because as we've all seen from these young graduates down here, from the ones who have graduated fifth grade and from junior high to senior high, we're all in this church family spiritually parenting together. So I invite you to learn today. The other thing we have to do is we have to acknowledge that in spite of our knowledge about what the great fathers do, this family that he works to produce, provide for, shape, and guide, we have to acknowledge that all human fathers, including my own, including me, including every dad in the room and all those who are watching online, we all make mistakes. And some of them are doozies. Some of them are whoppers. I mean, it's, it's, it's a little embarrassing. Even when we have the best of intentions, and honestly, we don't always. <laughs> Sometimes it's just payback time. No, I didn't say that. I did not say that. Even when we have the best of intentions, we don't always get it right. The sad truth is also that too many fathers make too many unnecessary mistakes by choices they made while others completely abandon their responsibilities as fathers. It's tragic. If you've done any reading or listening about what psychologists now call the father hunger that people have, um, it's a tragic thing when that trust is broken. But there's some really good news for all of us, and that is that the greatest father of all time is not Jim Williams. (laughs) The greatest father of all time is our heavenly father, and he loves you, everyone in this room. We know that because we have a favorite verse that tells us, for Father God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And you remember it runs into the next verse, which says that the world, and that means usens, that the world through him might be saved. God loves us that much, our heavenly Father. And the greatest work of the greatest father of all time is this family that he has produced and provided for and shaped and guided what we now know as His church, God's church. And along with that comes this great promise that the great Father gives, which says, He who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So you may be sitting there today feeling 
a little constrained. You haven't come quite as far as maybe you wish you had. You might have been like too often we engender in church and faith life is you come into Father's Day and you feel a little guilty about the father that you didn't turn out to be or that you've fallen short as, or maybe the father that you had who fell short in some way, or maybe that you think you're falling short for your heavenly father. And I, I won't tell you that it doesn't matter at all, but I'm going to tell you, it does not stop God from loving you. Amen. One of the great regrets of my life as a father is, is, is playing a manipulation game with your kids where you tell them how disappointed you are in them. You can communicate that, but you need to be very, very careful about how you do that. Because you only get X number of chances to communicate your unconditional love to your children. And there is nothing I could commend to you more. Because the great news is, the greatest father of all time, he will never stop loving you. He will never forsake you. He will never abandon you. He will see you through to the end. That is the great work of the greatest father of all time. Now, speaking as an earthly father, I can say it would be a little intimidating if a preacher were to kind of stop there and say, so God is the greatest father now you earthly fathers, go out and do likewise. <laughs> it's just like a wave of there is just no way I can do that. I, I, don't, I don't know how I can do all of it. It just seems so intimidating. I, I know that God will give me strength. I know I can, I can do more than, than, than I believe. I know that He is able to do amazing things beyond what I can ask or imagine through. But it seems like a really big reach to just say, go and be like Father God. So today the example I want us to pull from Scripture is a father who, while representing Father God in many ways, I think, also teaches me in a way, I, I think it's very reachable to do. It's not easy, but is, it, it is an attainable thing to learn. And I know that because Part of how I learned it is from some of you in this room. Now, today, a little different for me. I'm not going to walk you through verses, but if you want to open your Bible to Luke chapter 15, we're going to cover the whole chapter basically, but we're going to do so in a very broad sweep. So, Luke 15 is the chapter of the Bible that contains that famous story that I'm willing to bet almost everybody in the room knows, the story of the prodigal son. Which, if you are particularly quick on the uptake, knowing that this is Father's Day, you realize it's also about the prodigal son's father, right? A lot of the story is given to teach us about the father. And I kind of feel like, as a preacher, that you know, this story should be in my wheelhouse. I mean, I had a great father. I'm working hard to be a good father. I'm giving it my all. Between me and my brothers, we gave our parents plenty of prodigal moments, and frankly, as a pastor with some of you, I've had plenty of opportunity to work with prodigals. So, uh, it's, it gives us a good, a good basis to talk about today, about what we can learn 
And I also want to confess to you, I am seriously indebted to a brother, pastor, who shared this biblical interpretation of Luke 15 that I saw in a different way than I had ever seen it before. What he says is, when you look at Luke 15, there are these three stories about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. But what he does is to say, but it's one parable. How do we know that? Look at, if you've got your Bible open, look at the first couple of verses and you'll see he came up and he spoke a parable. Then he shared three stories. And so one of the things we would want to do as Bible students is say, then what would be the lesson, not of this story, that story, and that story, but what's the lesson of looking at the three stories at once that make up the parable. You with me? Folks, this is how you teach responsible biblical interpretation, okay? It's not yanking a verse here or there and saying there. It is giving the Bible its due. It is absolutely essential. Now, most of us have heard messages on the lost sheep or the lost coin or the prodigal son, but it says here, and Jesus spoke this one parable unto them with than these three stories he tells. So he starts out and he says, well, suppose a man has 99 or 100 sheep. He leaves the 99 in the wilderness. He discovers, you know, this one missing. He goes out, searches for the lost lamb. Not an unfamiliar story. A lot of us refer to you know, the, the, the lost lamb that people go out and find. Fairly familiar, especially for church folks. Probably the least familiar of the three stories is the one in the middle about the lady with the lost coin. And, and some of the Greek words here are a little bit tricky. It, there's actually the, the, the general consensus among scholars is that when it talks about the ten coins, don't think about it as ten quarters and you lose one and you hunt for the quarter. It is more like there was a necklace or a headband that had ten pieces that made up the crown or the necklace. And so, uh, you ladies know, right, you lose a piece out of a ten-stone necklace, how worth, how, how, what happens to the worth of the necklace itself? You're not going to wear one with this chunky thing missing. It, it seriously decreases the value of the jewelry. So, this one stone, this one coin is incredibly valuable to her to make the whole thing work together. So, she, when the coin is lost, she turns the house upside down, she lights the candles, she turns over the sofas, she, she hunts and hunts, and then she finds it. She puts it back where it belongs, she calls her neighbor friend ladies together for kind of a Starbucks moment, they all have a coffee clatch together, they share, they celebrate the fact that th this piece of jewelry is now restored to its full value. Then the longest and most familiar story of the three is about this man who has two sons. And in essence, the younger son comes and, and he says, now look, I know that someday I'm going to receive an inheritance, but you know what? We all know that too often you get an inheritance and you're already old, you're, you're, you're too old to enjoy it the way you could have. So how about you give me mine now while I still have some pizzazz, I still got some juice, I still want to get out there and let me have a good time with my inheritance. So one might argue whether it is wise or not, but the father gives the inheritance to this son in his youth, and the boy goes off into a far country. He wastes the money. He makes a fool of himself while the father 
stays back at home. So now let's sum these three up. I want you to think this through. This is what smacked me in the head. Sheep is lost. What happens? The shepherd goes searching. A coin is lost. What happens? You turn the house upside down, searching. The boy's lost, and the father stays home. Man, when I first heard this, I thought, how are you going to preach anything good out of that? Especially for Father's Day, you know. Is not this a little confusing? I mean, is a lost sheep more lost than a lost boy? I don't know. I don't think so. Is a lost coin more valuable than a lost boy? That I'm sure of, no. So then why is it that with this lost boy that you let him be lost while with the sheep you hunt for it and when the coin is lost you search until you find it? And the answer to this question is a much greater concept that has probably been practiced by many of you in this room. Most parents, most dads and moms have learned at least some of this lesson. And I can tell you from having been a parent for decades now and having talked to many parents as a pastor and one of our jokes used to be I couldn't go to my kids' soccer matches and swim meets because other parents came for counseling because they knew I was a pastor. I kid you not. I did more counseling of marriages and family relationships by the swimming pool than I've ever done in my pastoral office, and that is God's truth. Crazy, the hunger that is out there, the need that is there. And what I know from listening to them and from my own experience is that almost every parent goes through something just like this, especially with sons. And I'm just going to use sons because it's the prodigal son. No offense to the daughters in the room. Sometimes it's the prodigal daughters that, that bring the same thinking. But it's just like this. If, the parent says, if I put too much pressure on my child, if I, if I try to control him too much, if I'm too strict while he's growing up, Will it create a type of emotional compression that's later going to blow back on me? Like when they go away to college, are they going to forget everything I've ever taught them about responsible living? How will this child of mine react? Am I going to lose him if I fasten down too hard right now? But if I don't tighten things up right now and I'm indulgent, Will I be contributing to his future delinquency and problems? And every parent, man, you got this two-sided thing going on. I think almost all parents, and especially parents of prodigal sons, know what it is to live with this tremendous tension. But what those parents have taught me, and I think they understand this very deeply, and what we all need to hear to understand this parable correctly is that there is an enormous difference between a sheep and a coin and a boy. 
You see, the difference is that, well, let's start with the coin. An inanimate object like a coin has no will of its own. It has no destiny like that. It's not, it's not, some, it's not learning to express its free will. Similarly, a sheep, and you've heard me say I grew up on a farm that had sheep. Um, it's an animal that is basically a prisoner to its environment. Oh, I, I know the animal kingdom is amazing. It's, I mean, you can watch what some of them do. Sheep aren't amazing anybody, folks, okay? So, the sheep is an animal that is basically a prisoner to its own environment. While a human being or a boy or even an adult, right, can significantly manipulate their environment to achieve some social gain, right? I want to win over this person of the other gender. I want, to, I want to have this kind of relationship with these other people. I want to have business with these people. I want to trade with… We shape by our goals of who we want to be and what we want to do and how that works in the society in which we exist. It's an interesting kind of thing. But most parents have also learned, every good dad knows, there's a limitation to how much you can do with that. Let's start by looking at this dad in the story, because when I said a few minutes ago, this dad stayed home, some of you started thinking, huh, not, not much of a dad, is he? Hmm. Well, let's think about it. This dad has money. This dad has servants. At any point, he could have said, hey, I made a mistake. I gave that boy more money than he knew how to handle. I let him go to the far country. Now I'm hearing news that he's made a fool of himself. He's, he's making the family name look bad. And so here's what we're going to do. Hey, big servant. And he calls in his big servant. He says, grab up some of the fellas, some of the boys, take them with you, go over to that there far country, get Junior, and bring him back home. And big servant says to big daddy, absolutely, sir, we'll take care of it. And they go down, they find the nice Jewish boy flopping around in the pig pen, and he reaches in there and he grabs him by the scruff of the neck or his ankle or his wrist, whatever was handiest and cleanest. And he pulls him out, he takes his arm and shoves it up behind his back in between his shoulder blades and says, you come with me. You're going to get yours, Junior. We're taking you back home. And he marches him home and he's all the way home. You just wait till your daddy gets a hold of you. He brings him in the house, shoves him in the living room. And dad says, look at you, you goofball, you good Jewish boy, you smell like a pig. So I'll tell you what we're going to do. You go to your room. I'm going to put you there. You sit there on your bed. And I want you to think about what you've done. And when you're ready to come out of this bedroom and play nice with others, you come out here and you tell me how sorry you are that you've wasted your whole inheritance. So the boy goes back in the back bedroom, he sits down on the edge of his bed, and as he sits there, he says to himself, son of a gun, dad's right. Yes, sir, I, I wasted all, all my inheritance, and I am just a fool. I really need to straighten up. How many of you think that's the script of the story that we're in? 
Now, not anybody that's raised boys, right? And I'm not insulting boys. I'm one of many, one of many. But the boys I know, that's a pretty tough sell. Much more likely, this boy sits down on the edge of the bed and says, this is just like dear old dad. I mean, just about the time I'm going to make it big in pigs. I mean, I was going to be the new Oscar Mayer of the sausage world. You just wait till I get out of this bedroom. I'm going to do what I want to do because I want to do it. And he's not going to make me do anything I don't want to do. A or B? B, far much more likely scenario. A lot of fathers, dads, parents, but especially fathers, are smart enough to understand that's how boys think because they were one. But you see, now why did Jesus put this in this parable? Because this picture is also an insight into the relationship of God with humankind. So think about it this way. Father God is the creator of the heavens and the earth and every living creature. And on this little earth, which to use an analogy compares about as favorably to the rest of the planets as a grain of sand compares to all the other grains of sands on all the beaches of the earth. Like when he told Abraham, your descendants will be like the grains of sand. This little world, on it are all these little creatures we call humans. They're running around all over the place, these little things, and this God who has made it all. So what do you suppose that Father God, who made these heavens, the earth, and all of the living creatures, what do you think he'll do with somebody who says, I'm going to do what I want to do because I want to do it. And why don't you just quit bothering me? So what is God going to do? Going to zap us? I remember when I was going to college, and I went to a Baptist college, so you get to humor, right? We'd be standing there talking, and somebody would say something about God zapping somebody, and people would take a step. And the ones who were more theologically minded said, what's the matter? Your God doesn't have good aim? <laughs> Got to go to a Baptist college to get that, that rich stuff like that. No, God's not going to zap anybody. God doesn't do that for some reason. And you, and you, and you, I, we can all say, I'm going to do what I want to do because I want to do it. And what does God do? What does the Father in the story do? He waits. Oh, that's, that's the toughest five-letter word in the English language. He waits. He waits. He, he leaves us alone to make our decisions. Why? Because as the parable teaches us, there is a difference between sheep and coins. 
and boys or people. A huge difference. And let's just enjoy it for a moment. You know, the, cre- the created world glorifies God. I mean, there's the law of gravity, centrifugal force, the laws of physics. You know, I'm sure my scientist family will correct me later. There's the water cycle. There's the carbon dioxide cycle. There's this, all this stuff. And the trees and the flowers and everything that we see out there right now, they're glorifying God by doing what they were created to do. Hmm. It's a beautiful thing to observe and to think about. I, I actually sat down for a few minutes with an atheist neighbor this week. He reminded me that he was an atheist. I said, oh, yeah, I understand. He said, you know, people ask me what's going to happen when I die. He said, you're just going to go back to what you were before. Who knows? I said, well, that's an interesting theory. Let me tell you what I think. And I basically went through just this simple, because he's a scientist, I talked about nature and the laws of science and, and what goes on. Those things are out there glorifying God. But you know what? Those things, those trees and those flowers and those rocks, they're not you. They're not me. They're not humans. If God wanted to treat us without any free will, like we were trees and rocks and flowers and things, if he wanted to treat us like robots or puppets and just determine things, then he would eliminate the purpose for the human race. We would be the same as sheep and coins, and it would just all be settled for us. Humankind wouldn't be anything special but God chose to create humankind in His image. God chose to give us free will. He has, he has taken, can we just be honest, an enormous risk and voluntarily limited Himself in direct proportion to the freedom He has given humankind. It's amazing. In God's economy, He restrains Himself, but not us. Don't you think it'd be a better world if it was the other way around? But God knew better. Why? Because here's the real catch, the real catch to it, the real kicker, the difference between the sheep, the coin, the human beings, why God would do that and why God would not make us automatic like the trees and the flowers and the grass is because God is looking for somebody to give Him voluntarily, give Him reciprocal love. We love because He first loved us. That is the word of Scripture, and in my mind, that is the point of this parable. I don't know why God thinks that your and my voluntary love and commitment to Him should be so valuable. I, I, I don't understand why He would give up what He gave up when He gave His only begotten Son. I just know that He did. I know it is the witness of the Bible. I know it is the witness of the Holy Spirit to my own heart. It is why we are here. And it's funny to me that this kind of love that we are talking about, I mean, the songwriters all want to capture it. The poets want to communicate about it. But this is the deal, folks. It is a love exchange voluntarily between us and God. You can't force it on somebody or it's not real, right? 
Matter of fact, you want something ugly in this world, try to force love on another person. We call it rape. We call it assault. We call it all kinds of it's about as ugly as it gets when you force your love. And what do we know that the Bible says? We take the image from the book of Revelation. Behold, God says, I stand at the door and knock. Doesn't knock it down. Doesn't barge in. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Because the Father the greatest father of all time wants us to open the door. And until we do, he waits. He waits. Wow. Now, to wrap up, one of the, one of the cute little pieces that goes with the story, you know, when you read the story from the Bible, you, you get the sense that the father is going out to the road on a regular basis and he's looking. He's watching. He's waiting, but he's watching. He's longing. And, you know, there's that son who says, I'm in the real biblical story, not the version I gave you a few minutes ago. He, say, he comes to himself, the Bible says, and he says, I'm going to go home and say, Dad, I'm not worthy of being your son. Bring me on as a servant. You know, I, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. And so, he, he, he heads home. And, and, and when he gets there, he starts up, and the father sees him when he is still a far way off, the Bible says. And what happens? The father goes to meet him, and the father says to his servants, he says, this is my boy. Bring a robe. He doesn't have a robe. Get me a robe. He doesn't have a ring. Get me a ring. We're going to celebrate because my son is here, the one I've been waiting. And the son, he starts with his thing. Uh, uh, Father, uh, you know, I have sinned against heaven, against thee. Make me as one of thy servants. I'm a, I'm a worm. I'm, I'm a nothing. Step on me. You know how we get sometimes. And the father is having none of that. None of that. And he says, we're going to have a barbecue because we're celebrating that my child is home. So instead of the prodigal son, more and more, I'm going to try to always remember this story as the story of the waiting father. Our father is waiting for us. There's a difference between sheep and coins and people, and the greatest father of all time is looking down the road, and he is watching for you, waiting to run to you waiting to welcome you home as his child. Father's Day really is a good day for all of us when we remember that the Heavenly Father is the greatest Father of all time. Let's pray. Father God, how could we do anything but in this moment say thank you, thank you. Like the prodigal son, we would, we would want to blurt out, we are not worthy. We have failed again and again. We have squandered our opportunities and our inheritance. But you, oh God, are having none of that. You have called us co-heirs with Jesus. You have welcomed us back 
home, into your presence, into your will, into your family on this earth, and one day into your kingdom with you eternally. For this, on this Father's Day, where we have realized yet again that you are the Father who has waited and longed and loved us, we say thank you through Christ our Lord. And all God's people agreed and said, amen.